Chapter 7, Anchorhead. Galaxy lore states that the planet Naboo exudes a palpable power to those attuned to it. As Dewey embarks into hyperspace, Mookie, who had been contemplating a cybernetic enhancement of her arm, falls into a deep, trance-like state. An awakening of sorts, likely triggered by the ghosts of the Nabooian virgins. In Mookie's dreamlike state, she sees a bright flash of red across her vision. Then there's a brief sensation of pain, which quickly dissipates as she becomes aware of her arm tumbling down a large chasm, an infinite bottomless hole. As the arm tumbles, it begins to disintegrate. The shoulder to the elbow vanishes in ghostly smoking tendrils, then the elbow to the wrist. The hand becomes four individual fingers, then three, two, then just one, still tumbling down and down the chasm. As it tumbles, the remaining finger begins to enlarge, becoming so vast and immense that the ridges of its very fingerprints become the walls of canyons as high as to block out the sun, narrow canyons and possibly deep. Tumbling still, Mookie reemerges, whole, and comes to rest at the base of one of these canyons. She stands in this narrow canyon with walls thousands of feet high, yet no more than a couple meters wide. She looks forward into the blackness. Approaching behind her, she feels a sense of cold, pain, fear, and death. Ahead of her, she feels wind screaming past her face as if she is flying. The air smells of a forest, organic and full of life, yet she stands still. Approaching from ahead of her is a sense of warmth, of life, and of hope. There is a faint glow that approaches her from the side, illuminating the walls of the canyon walls etched with words and images that are foreign to her. In fact, the walls of the canyons, as they begin to glow from the approaching luminescence, appear to be completely covered with words, but Muki is unable to decipher the text. As the cold behind her closes in and the warm goal ahead of her closes in, she is sandwiched in the middle, and her body and the canyon dissolve now to become two hands coming together, two hands of the same body, one a mechanical hand of gears, pulleys, and steel. The other is a biologic polis mass in hand. As they clasp, a white aura shines from their mutual palms. This aura materializes into a face. First a face of Muki, then the face of her mother, then the face of her grandmother, then a sense of all the faces of all the beings of the galaxy that have lived, are living, or ever will live. They are all staring back silently into Muki's eyes. Then they all suddenly cry out in a cacophony of noise of billions of individuals screaming at once. Then there is a bright light, and Muki's vision abruptly ends. She shakes her head, somewhat bewildered by this vision as she awakes, and stumbles from her cabin into the main bay. Inside the main cargo bay, on the long flight to Tatooine, the other Kurds have decided to open the crate stolen from Drod and the Basadi Hut clan, now resting akimbo over in the cargo bay itself. At the far end of the cargo bay, from the tall crate, they hear whimpering in a language no one understands. Buck thinks it sounds like a Twi'lek dialect from Ryloth. Fod catches the crowbar tossed from Ted and starts cranking open the crate. It cracks open and a tendril pops out of what appears to be a Twi'lek's leku. The upper torso of a Twi'lek female protrudes from a partial block of carbonite that must have thawed in the fighting on Naboo. She is terrified, but her eyes look whited over and glazed. Fod wrenches the entire lid open. 
There are several other figures in Carbonite that are flashing critical failure. The distraught Twi'lek is flailing about, partially stuck in Carbonite. Ted and Buck rush in to provide reassurance to the shocked Twi'lek. Muttering in an unknown language, she blindly probes the area around her and her hands find Buck's face. In basic, she pleads, Help me, Vision. Can't see. Can't see. Vod starts banging against the carbonite with the crowbar. Vod, Vod, stop, cries Ted. We've done this before. That's not going to work. He reminds them of the janky frozen blocks from Zinzin on Narshada. There's a keyboard in basic. Roquan quickly pulls up carbonite defrost instructions on his data pad. Buck starts furiously typing commands to thaw them out. He is able to stop the critical failure alarm, but the figure is still frozen. Ted keeps working on the keypad as Vod tries to provide comfort, stroking her Liku. Roquan gives another attempt and finally frees the Twi'lek, releasing her from bondage. Buck catches her and gives her reassurance as he orients her to her whereabouts. She reaches out, touching his upper chest. Tailcats, come to home. Kill Clan Den elders. Take Clan she-mates. Sisters. My sisters. She slumps back, unconscious and exhausted. Ted reminds them of the Salonians, the tailcats they saw in Farstein. The Twi'lek asks where she is. Ted provides her a blanket and tries to explain how they stole her from the Salonians and the Hut clan. As Buck and the crew reassure the newly thawed group of Twi'leks that they have no intentions to sell them into slavery, nor take them back to the huts, Sid Dodd, Mookie, and Ted put their heads together to attempt to finish refurbishing and constructing Ted's ARC-170 Starfighter. Despite Ted spending hours on his attempted ship's crafting, he is unsuccessful in getting the ARC fully operational. Sid suggested look for a dry dock and some assistance on Tatooine. Ted agrees, and the Dewey crew, exhausted from the trials and travails of Farstein and Naboo, retreat to their individual bunks to recharge and rest in the remaining hours of the hyper-travel from Naboo to Anchorhead on Tatooine. One by one, they all fall asleep. Deep in sleep, Roquan dreams of vision that is all too vivid. Darkness. Darkness suddenly punctuated by deep, raspy mechanical breathing that surrounds Roquan on all sides. He is inside a pitch-black box. He hears screams, and in front of his eyes, the visages of his parents in their death throes. He stares into their glazed and lifeless eyes. You are powerless to save those you love, a voice echoes in his ears. It is a familiar voice. Lancing pain courses through him as the glowing and sneering face of Anim Palid emerges from the darkness and unleashes shocking bolts through Roquan. To be truly powerful, you must learn to deal death to all who are weak. Vindication, Roquan. Revenge. Bolts crackle from Anim Palid, filling the air with smoke, which begins to reflect light coming from above Roquan's head. Anim Palid continues to cackle. The power, Roquan. The power. A Thispiazian, Shell Sterling, emerges from the smoke and floats down from above. Shell's voice penetrates the pain. Justice, cruelty, in stasis plain. Darkness arises if anger flames. The path ahead in conflict writ 
a Jedi axe with force alit. Bolts erupt from a neem toward Shell. Shell's palms open and he absorbs the energy in his hands. The two beings vanish in an explosion that blinds Roquan. When he opens his eyes, he is in an empty room standing naked and unarmed. He feels fear. The room is completely empty and silent save for one door across the room. From outside this door and from the space beyond shines a hot white light beckoning Roquan forward. He stumbles towards the blinding light as a faceless silhouette springs through the threshold and a blast of hot energy strikes Roquan, sending him tumbling to the ground. Roquan touches the spot where he is struck and in his failing vision notes his hand is covered in a black substance, dripping, dripping. He feels searing pain. Again, Anim Palid's voice pierces his mind. To deal death is to control the living. Before Roquan blacks out, he once again hears the voice of Shell. A Jedi acts with force alit. The Thispiazian's voice echoes and trails off as a deep mechanical breathing ushers Roquan to unconsciousness. Roquan awakens, startled, alone in his room. An alarm sounds from the cockpit. We're coming up on Tatooine, boys, exclaims Sid Dodd. They drop out of hyperspace after nine days of travel and the rusty planet appears before them. Anchorhead, over there. That's where I need to go, says Sid. The white gleaming sands and ochre rocks of the desert planet glide past the ship. It is so bright they need to increase the tint of the windshields as the light from the twin suns blinds them. They drop closer into a relatively small settlement and into a single docking bay. There are several small buildings scattered around on the fringe. The town center consists of 20 to 30 small buildings. Fabric rooftops are mostly torn, frayed edges blowing in the dusty wind. Small humanoid creatures with glowing eyes and little brown robes chitter to each other as they walk in small groups. As the landing gear hiss and comes to rest, Sid thanks them. He pulls up his comlink and speaks briefly in his native language, then turns to the crew. My cousin, Moma Dens, is at the Denizens Cafe over there. Would you like to join us? The Kurds all agree to meet him. They exit the ship following Sid. In the cafe, they see another Duro seated at a table with a human. Sid makes introductions for his cousin and describes how the Kurds escaped the Imperial blockade on Farstein. Sid asks Moma Dens for credits to repay his debt. I appreciate all you have done for me, my friends, Sid says with reverence as he passes a thousand credits to Buck. So, who exactly are your friends here? asks the human sitting near Moma. We're nobodies, replies Buck. Nobodies who shot your way past an imperial blockade? Pretty impressive for nobodies, the stranger says. We're just looking to repair our ship and move on, Ted interjects. Yeah, I could see part of the hull hanging off the back end of your ship when it flew in, says the stranger. You could probably find some help at Tashi Station to get some repairs. I'm Saponza. Ever heard of me? Well, this guy, Momadens and I, we blasted our way out of Parcellus Minor. Yeah, that battle years ago in that swampy hellhole on the outer rim. Seeing that the new arrivals are unimpressed, Saponza changes courses. When you get to Tashi Station, you want the power converters. Trust me. As they depart, they wish Sid well. He expresses gratitude. Kurds, I suspect we will cross paths again. The Kurds make their way along the sparsely populated streets to a small garage, Tashi Station. The massive front doors open and inside machine parts and hunks of metal are strewn about. 
This mechanic shop appears to be in relatively good shape compared to the other buildings of Anchorhead. There are three grease-smeared women busy at working, applying a wielding torch to an elaborate hunk of metal. Vaughn interrupts them. Uh, I'm here to pick up some power converters. The redhead holding the torch stops and flicks up her masks. What do you mean, pick up power converters? We are the power converters. Vod pauses, a bit confused. I'm Glenn Real. This is Wrench. She gestures to the husky mechanic holding a large piece of metal over her shoulder. And this is Vivo Kala. The mechanic with the shaved head and forearm tool stands up and appraises them. So you want to pick us up, eh? Ted steps forward. We need a little help with the repair of our ship back in the docking bay. Glenn smiles at the Pantoran, shaking her head. I'd love to help, but most of our tools got ripped off. See, Wrench over here lives on the outskirts of town in the eastern settlement. She was working on a project and some Tuscans came through and robbed her. It was a bit of a surprise. The Tuscans haven't been acting right recently, much, much more aggressive than usual. So, with what tools we've got here, we could do some minor repairs, but if you need more than that, <laughs> I'm going to need my tools back. Ted asks, If we get your tools back, would you consider a square for repairs, even? Eh, I'd consider you discount material, counters Glenn. Generally, work like that would cost you easily 2,000 credits, but if you can recover our tools, I could really knock the price down. They banter for a bit, discussing their arrival and meeting Moma and Sapanza in the cafe. They learn the Tuscans are raiders who live out in a part of the desert called the Junlin Wastes. Vivocala ripes her brow. Those two you met in the cafe, the Duros and the human, they're mercenaries who are supposed to hunt the Tuscans. Can I give you 500 credits to get started on the ship? Asks Ted. We'll see what we can do about those tools. The power converters agree, and Ted describes the DeWay and the damage that it has incurred. Mookie wanders out into the streets, interested in learning what she can about these strangely aggressive Tuscan raiders. Sitting in the shade of a vendor stall, she meets a town elder. He describes that the young Tuscans who have seemingly taken over are more aggressive. I heard that these young Tuscan brutes even killed a 12-year-old boy's mother. For some reason, they keep invading the eastern settlement, out on the edge there of Anchorhead. The old man gestures out on the east of town. I haven't seen their clan chief in quite some time, continues the elder. We used to trade with the sand people. That's what we call them, sand people. But now it's all the violent young sand people running things this past season. They seem more interested in burning, looting, and killing than in trade. Mookie returns to the others, and they decide to go speak with the mayor of Anchorhead in hopes of finding a diplomatic solution to this new Tuscan Raider problem. After learning where to find the mayor, they head out into the streets. Fod spots a group of small, brown-robed figures. Suspicious of their whispery language and apparent secretiveness, Fod colludes that these creatures must be spies of some kind. He breaks off from the others to collect more information from the Tatooine natives. Jawas, who he has mistakenly identified as bog people. Vod tucks behind some fabric near the Jawas, listening, observing, intently. Buck, Ted, Roquan, and Mookie leave Vod behind and eventually find the mayor's abode. The door opens and a dirty human wearing tight pants, a broad-rimmed cowboy hat, and a pair of blasters on his hips greets them. What you boys need? He asks in his unschooled drawl. Nice to meet you, sir. My name's Buck. I'm Pankratz, Pankratz Jr. I've been the mayor of Anchorhead for two full months. You outsiders? Heard you had a problem with the Tuscan Raiders, Buck ventures casually. 
Sounds like your villagers are getting harassed and murdered. Yep. East Settlement has been ripped to shit. Gave my daddy a heart attack. That's why I'm the mayor now. He spits some cha on the ground near Mookie's feet. The diminutive Paulus Masson steps forward, activating her electronic vocal box. Maybe we can find a nice peaceful solution and a permanent fix to your situation. Now listen, little lady. Those damn Sam people struck first. I hired some mercenaries to hunt them down and bring back the chief's gatherfy stick. It's their symbol of power. Now if one of you want to help them, go get that chief's gaffy stick. Mookie raises her hands in a calming gesture. The Sands People's chief likely has more relatives and will heighten the problem, she suggests. <laughs> you just gotta slaughter animals when they act up, argues Pankratz. Mookie shakes her head in disagreement. Are you one of them Sand People sympathizers? Well, if you come up with another permanent solution, I'll be happy. Mookie asks if anyone in Anchorhead speaks the Tuscan language. Pankras points towards the eastern sediment where he suggests some folks might have a droid that speaks Tuscan. Can't trust him. Them sand people are dirty, stink, rotten animals. I'll give you 3,000 credits for that gaffy stick, and you can stay in Anchorhead for free any night you want. Leaving, the Kurds consider their options amongst each other. Meanwhile, Vod discovers that the Bog people are in fact droid traders. Vod proposes a trade roughly communicating with basic and hand gestures. The Bog people, a.k.a. Jawas, offer a small translator droid fluent in Tuscan. Vod offers to trade his damaged vibroglave, and the Jawas agree. The translator droid is a simple, small, rolling wheeled droid with a stem body with a speaker and lights. In basic, it introduces itself as BG-8R. Great. I'll call you Bug Eater, Vod says, approvingly. We're going to need you to talk to the raiders. The droid offers his service, and Vod pets him on what appears to be its head. The PCs determine the best course is to seek more information regarding the Tuscans and potentially leverage the circumstance to score some extra credits from Pankrats while hopefully finding Glynn, the mechanic's tools, as a means of paying for desperately needed repairs on the Dewey. As they scout Anchorhead, they are directed by the locals to a house of worship, where the elderly leader, who apparently used to be a frequent trader with the Tuscans, is able to offer some sage advice. As the adventurers enter the small house of worship, a bent and gray elder approaches. Welcome to the Temple of the Water Lady. You look like travelers. I am Blossfeld. How can I be of service? Buck asks about trading with the Tuscan Raiders. I used to when I was a moisture farmer, but this season is much, much different. They have been so violent and so aggressive. Their usual chief, though, hasn't been seen in months. Perhaps there is a peaceful solution to these raids, Buck suggests. Blossfeld nods in agreement. Ted asks what they traded. Dewback meat, textiles, rifles, various sundries. The elder replies, Could you join us in negotiations with the sand people? We could even make a peace offering, Buck proposes. Blossfeld shakes his head. My people need me here, and I am much too old to travel the Jundlin wastes. But I want you to take this. He shuffles past some pews and opens a closet door, grabbing a wrap bundle. Though I cannot make this journey, take this gift. I believe it may be help. 
They give praises to the elder's goddess, the water lady, and then leave. Outside, Buck opens the bundle and finds brightly colored textiles inside. They decide to return to Tashi Station to see about finding transport into the Junlin Wastes. Back at Tashi Station, they find the power converter is busy at work fixing the Dewey. Ted mentions they are going to get the tools back, but they need transport to get out into the desert. Glenn offers several wheel bikes, which Ted recognizes as Gallus Tech 48 rollers. Thanking Glenn, the four Kurds hop on the bikes and head out east towards the Junlin Wastes. As they leave the eastern encampment behind, Roquan informs the group that he used to track quarry and could lead the hunt. With Roquan's roller in the lead, they set out. The sand is blowing across the wide-open desolation, but the deep tracks are not getting covered. They speed across the desert, and the train becomes a bit rockier. They are able to follow tracks leading from the eastern encampment further and further into the Junlin Wastes. The wind begins to blow even harder. From the south, a gravel storm approaches. Small rocks begin to pelt them with a fierceness as they cruise across the hot sand. Growing on the horizon are large, rocky walls. This area is known as the Junlin Wastes. The tracks that they are following lead down into a canyon between two large walls of rocks. Although this appears to be an excellent location for an ambush, Vod suggests they go with weapons stowed and open palms. Roquan offers to split off from the group of the slug thrower to provide overwatch from above. From his perch atop the apex of a rocky canyon wall, Roquan spots two crouched figures several hundred yards away near a lone rock in the distance. Something metallic gleams near the figures. Echoing through the canyon, Roquan hears a distant barking sound. He calls his crew over comms as they head down into the canyon following the tracks. Roquan cautions them of the possible peril ahead. The others decide to throttle back at slow speed, but press on nonetheless. The canyon walls open up and the valley widens into a vast sand field. They spot the boulder where Roquan noted the hidden figures. Vod asks his translator droid to exclaim that they come in peace, in Tuscan. The droid lets out a surprisingly loud Tuscan cry. Two heads pop up briefly. The figures stalk towards them, somewhat in feigned stealth from boulder to boulder. As they approach, the Kurds realize it's Sapanza and Sid's cousin, Momadens. What the hell are you doing out here? Says Sapanza. We're hunting our quarry. Buck angrily retorts, We're trying to negotiate a peace and you're only sabotaging it. Sapanza says he's just trying to make a living. He points to a rock shelf in the distance. See that? That rocky ledge over there encampment is loaded with explosives. We're going to score some easy credits, take them down, and we're not backing down just because you showed up. Ted draws his gun on them. And we're not going to let you kill them if a truce can be had. Whoa, whoa. Sapanza slowly puts his hand on his blaster and clicks off the safety. His gaze darts about and he recognizes there are three of them against him and Momadens. Look, I'm just here to make a score. But if you're going to draw guns on me, uh, you're the boss. But, uh, can we come along? Buck retorts. Look, you want credits? We want credits. But we think the best thing is a peaceful solution for the village. We're probably outnumbered, and so we could use your support. We're going to find their leader and broach a peace deal. You want to find the leader, says Sapanza. They'll rip your friggin' head off. The locals have traded for years with the sand people. We're just looking to reinstate peace, says Buck. So what's the plan, boss? Asks Momadens. Ted asks to see their blasters and detonator. Sapanza spins his blaster and resheathes it. He pulls off his back pad and gives it a shake, suggesting the detonite inside. 
Moma Dens opens his jacket, revealing a hidden blaster rifle. Ted nods and gestures for him to keep it. The group processes farther ahead as the canyon continues to open up. The broad expanse spans a thousand yards from north to south. Seeing the vast landscape ahead, Roquan decides to head back to the canyon entrance and work his way back to their location to join them. Sapanza hands Ted a pair of macro binoculars. Look, way over there. You can see their huts. They all mount their wheel bikes and slowly approach the Sand People's encampment. Sapanza and Moma follow behind on a pair of swoop bikes. Buck shouts back to the two mercenaries to keep their hands off the blasters unless things get hairy. The hot, dry wind begins to blow. Straight ahead in the distance, there is a glint six feet off the ground. Buck pushes ahead of the group, trying to spot the raiders through the sand. The dust obscures his vision, and he wipes at his burning eyes. From the village, a Tuscan raider mounts a bantha, giving a bone-chilling war cry. The bantha charges forward towards Buck's oncoming vehicle. The massive bantha lowers its horned head at Buck's bike. Buck's fearful cry is cut short as the bantha crashes into his wheel bike. Vod quickly pushes forward on his bike and hops off, stashing it near a boulder not far from his fallen friend. A rifle report cracks out from the north, spraying dust near Buck's prone form. Several sand people stand up from the rocky shadows, whooping and holding their rifles over their heads. Another gun report sounds from the south. Buck feels a searing pain as a metal slug slams into his shoulder. A Tuscan war cry sounds from the south again. Moma Dens draws his blaster rifle as he kills the engine of his swoop. He jumps off and fires at a Tuscan atop the nearby rock, nearly striking him. Roquan zooms ahead and hops off his wheel bike, dust spewing from the skidding bike. Sapanza pushes his small swoop forward towards the Tuscans on the rock to the north. He jumps off and draws his blaster. Ted slows his bike and yells out, trying to imitate the Tuscan speech previously made by Bug Eater. Although he tries to say, We come in peace, what Ted actually yells in a rough Tuscan imitation is, We bow to the superiority of Tuscans and wish no fights. The Tuscan who is riding the bantha perks his head towards Ted. Show them the offering, Buck, yells Ted. Buck crawls out of his wrecked wheel bike, nursing his shoulder. He quickly reaches into his jacket to a spray of concoction of space cow bantha scent onto his own neck. He stands and holds the wrapped bundle out for Duskin Raider on the bantha. Although the rider doesn't understand Buck's basic speech, he recognizes he is being offered a gift. The Tuscan hops down from the bantha. Holding his own gaffy stick, barking unintelligibly, Vod grabs Buddy Geeter from his bike and coaxes him out towards Buck. Go help him interpret, little guy. In the shadow of the rock, Vod quickly draws his vibroaxe and leans against the rock. With open arms, Buck welcomes the Tuscan. Friend, says Buck. Both groups of Tuscan snipers to the north and south pause and climb down from the rocky position, gradually approaching their apparent leader, rifles drawn. Ted cries out to Moma Dens and Sapanza, Boys, put down your blasters or you're going to have to go against us. The two mercenaries holster their weapons and the tension level of the crowd lowers. The Tuscan leader draws a hexagonal polygon around Buck and the Bantha and the wheeled droid. From the village, three more Banthas with Tuscan riders slowly shuffle out. The clan leader growls, It is wise to bow to the might of our Tuscan clan, otherwise you would be Bantha Pudu. Translates Bug Eater, from the growls and hoots of the Tuscan native tongue. We are most honored to be in your presence, Buck replies, bowing. Bug Eater translates as the interaction unfolds. The raider folds his arms and gives a superior look. <coughs> to which Bug Eater translate, What did you bring, my mighty clan? 
Buck unfurls the bundle, revealing a large woolen shawl with patterned designs. The chief snatches it and drapes it over his shoulder and hoots in his Tuscan tongue. Bug Eater turns to Buck. He says he appreciates the fine wares, but why have you invaded his homeland? We are travelers, and we are looking for tools that were taken from Anchorhead. In order to return to our homeland, we need these tools returned, answers Buck. He suggests with a peaceful resolution they could have a fine trade relationship between the Tuscans and the people of Anchorhead. The clan leader stares at Buck through his metallic visors. <laughs> Bug Eater translates, I will consider renegotiating trade with the people of Anchorhead if they are willing to rid themselves of the eastern settlements. Buck frowns and asks, What is the significance of those settlements to the Tuscans? Why do they desire them to leave? The chief grunts angrily. <laughs> Bug Eater translates again. We need that land for grazing our banthas. We lost our sacred grazing lands and the banthas are starving. Ted interjects. What happened to your sacred grazing land? The Tuscan chief barks a brief response. Bug Eater translates. Ground mouth. Buck stares blankly. I, I don't understand. Ted turns to Saponza and Moma Dens. What's a ground mouth? Moma shrugs. I'm not sure what a ground mouth is, but it sounds like something happened. The Tuscan raider points off in the distance to where the twin suns are setting. His vocalization has the hint of fear. The droid translates. The ground mouth is that way. Meanwhile, in Anchorhead, Mookie is looking at clinic building schematics, making considerations to build another Queen Bacta in Anchorhead. She takes out her comm link to contact the group. Buck picks up and informs her of the situation and of the Tuscan chief's request for the colonists to move out of the eastern settlement. Mookie suggests she will discuss it with the mayor. Mookie, the mayor is a cowardly bigot. Maybe you could ask Blasthel the Elder instead. And Mookie, have you ever heard of a ground mouth? Mookie doesn't recall exactly what it is, but recalls it has something to do with a pit in the ground. She paces as she is talking on the comm link. She notices Blasfeld standing outside the Water Lady Temple. Mookie approaches him. Elder Blasfeld, my friends encountered the Tuscans, and they speak of a ground mouth claiming their grazing land. Do you know of this? Blasfeld blinks and furrows his brow. A ground mouth is a sarlacc. Are you familiar with those? Mookie pauses, confused. It is a mouth that resides in the ground? Mookie recalls stories of a great pit of Carcoon and that is merely the orifice of a much larger buried creature. Mookie asks, We are negotiating a peace with the sand people of the Jundland Wastes. They would like to move into the eastern encampment and bring about trade. Blossfield's eyes open wide. We people of the eastern settlement have been here for years. Any movement would have to be approved by the mayor. Returning to his comms with Buck, she informs him that the ground mouth is a sarlacc pit. It eats anything that falls in, she proceeds to describe her knowledge of sarlacc anatomy to Buck. Are you looking for transportation to catch up with your friends? asks Blothseld. He offers his yopi to Mookie. She thanks him and heads out through the sand and rock, following the roller tracks, heading further east. Back in the Jundlin Wastes, the Tuscan chiefs challenge the Kurds to rid them of the sarlacc. Ted asks for Saponza's backpack and the detonite within. Saponza, begrudgingly, hands it over. Ted grabs it and tells Bug Eater to translate. Kill Groundmouth. We will. Buck suggests that they will kill the Sarlacc in exchange for peace and the tools to be returned. 
The Tuscan chief responds through Bug Eater. We are willing to accept your help. If you succeed, we are willing to give back what we have taken. However, Groundmouth ate our elder chief whole with his gaffy stick. If you face it, you will have to face it by yourselves. I can take it, Vod claims, stepping forward and puffing at his chest. Probably on my own. They all bow to the Tuscan leader. Bug Eater continues to translate. We will point you in the direction of the Groundmouth. You cannot use your wheeled devices. You will need to use our banthas to get there. Buck agrees. We'll do it. Deal. And we appreciate the banthas. Through Bug Eater again, the leader asks, How will you bait the Groundmouth? Our banthas are out of the question. Ted pulls the detonator from Saponza's bag and holds it up. Saponza points up to the rocky overhang above the village. We fixed a number of charges up there on the rocky overhang. We're going to bring it down on their huts, Saponza mutters without a hint of remorse. Vod, are you up for it? Ted asks, pointing to the stalactites on the underside of the rocky overhang, several dozen feet off the desert floor. There are several detonite bundles firmly attached and wired overhead. Vod gives Ted a gentle headbutt. He pulls out his climbing gear. Though a difficult task, Vod manages to climb up the wall and slowly and carefully remove the detonite charges unexploded to be used for their further adventures. As Vod finishes his high wire feat, Mookie rides up on her Iopi, catching up with the party. With her arrival, the heroes decide to mount up and head out. Ted, Momadens, and Vod clamber up onto one bantha. Buck, Saponza, and Roquan mount another. With a backpack full of detonite, they head out, Mookie following along on her yopi. Along their trek out of the valley, Saponza leans forward to Buck and asks, I hear you're all smugglers. So, what are you smuggling? I hear you cut deals with the huts? Buck looks over his shoulder. We don't work with any huts. We ran across them, and let's say we don't want to come across them again. Saponza replies, Sid said you were smuggling something for them, the huts? Ted interrupts to set the story straight, explaining the hut slave trade and how the Kurds have just set some slaves free. As they trudge along the sand, the ground gets a bit steeper upwards. Reaching the crescent of a hill, they find a vantage point revealing tufts of green and a stream and water below. Roquan pulls out his scope and spots three large creatures grazing on the tufts of green near the stream. One of these large reptilian creatures suddenly startles at a puff of sand. A blur of brown snaps out of the ground and wraps around its legs. A frightened howl echoes off the canyon walls, and in a flash, the big green creature is pulled into the ground. It is gone. I found it, exclaims Roquan. The creatures known as dewbacks being snagged by what most likely is the sarlacc, the ground mouth. The heroes discuss an approach. Mookie suggests using a dewback as bait. Roquan instead offers to be bait himself and carry the detonite into the maw on his back. Ballsy. I like it, Vod exclaims. Roquan, you know this is suicide, states Buck. Better me than some animal, Roquan responds. Buck shakes his head. No, you are more important than any animal, and an important member of this crew. The sandy wind whips their faces as they push closer to the river. They dismount near the stream, where the bances drink and eat grass near the dewbacks. Mookie again suggests using an animal for bait. 
Vod starts to prep Roquan on a suicidal detonite run, tying the climbing rope and harnesses to Roquan's waist. Buck explodes with incredulity. This creature just ate a dewback. Come on, Roquan. It's the circle of life. These dewbacks are going to get eaten anyway. Why don't we just strap the explosives to one of them? He pleads for sanity, but Roquan won't hear of it. Vod goes back to roping up Roquan. Buck walks up to the edge of the Sarlacc's waiting maw. He's holding a handful of freshly picked greens, luring a dewback. Another dewback sniffs the air and heads his way. Ted and Mookie arm the detonite in the pack. Suddenly, the detonite detonator starts blinking with a countdown. You've got 15 seconds before it blows, yells Ted, holding one end of Roquan's safety rope. The dewbacks push against Buck for the food, knocking him down. Roquan bolts for the sarlacc hole, backpack chirping down the seconds. A hideous screech sounds from the gaping maw as he sprints down the sand. A large, muscular tentacle pops out just ahead of him, and a gaping, beak-like mouth emerges. Roquan chucks the pack full of detonite overhand into the maw as the sand gives out from beneath his feet. The detonite drops perfectly into the beaked mouth and explodes. Burnt, fleshy parts and tentacles explode outward as the sarlacc shrieks in agony. Several scarred, burnt tentacles thrash upwards and find purchase on Roquan's chest and arm. Vod jumps down towards Roquan and chops wildly with his vibroaxe. The tentacles hold fast, spraying the sand with blood. Ted pulls on the rope to haul Roquan up, but it snaps, sending Ted tumbling backwards. Roquan sees the rope snap and looks up at Vod in desperation. Buck throws the greens into the toothy pit, luring the dewbacks down from the sandy slope. Rushing over the edge of cone of sand, Mookie pulls a frag grenade and tosses it towards the maw. It goes long, exploding on the far side of the mouth. More tentacles emerge, grabbing the two dewbacks who's wandered into the trap. Vod heaves again with his axe, chopping down at the tentacle, whipping Roquan from side to side. He misses and another tentacle slaps at Vod, whipping him off his feet. Roquan cries out in fear and the Sarlacc pulls him closer in. A disfigured, beaky mouth reaches out and grabs Roquan, pulling him inward, leaving only rivulets of a bloody trail behind. The twin suns disappear from Roquan's side as the air tightens in his lungs. Back on his feet, Ted fires maniacally. A struck tentacle recoils as his gun smokes and overheats. Vod struggles against another tentacle as Mookie pulls her own gun and fires. She strikes the beaked mouth and it screeches in pain again. The dewbacks are ensnared and getting pulled into the maw. Buck unclips a frag grenade from his belt, pops the pin, and tosses it towards the gigantic mouth. The explosion blows open the side of the gullet and the beak collapses limply. The tentacle on Vod's leg slackens and recoils. Inside the upper gullet, Roquan lands with a splash. The Sarlacc, a juvenile, lets out a high and low-pitched final whine, then goes completely still. There is a disfiguring gory tear in the upper portion of the Sarlacc's mouth, providing an escape for Roquan. As he starts to climb, he looks back down and sees the half-digested body of a mangled Tuscan, mask torn away and face dissolving. In the soupy remains of his arm bones, a skeletal hand is clutching an elaborate gaffy stick. Roquan quickly grabs it and starts pulling himself out of the enormous Sarlacc corpse. Vod kicks the limp tentacle and reaches down to help Roquan as he crawls out of the gullet. Roquan grabs Purchase on a large tooth and yanks one free. He grabs another and breaks it off. Back at the top of the pit, he hands one of the Sarlacc teeth to Buck. A souvenir, says Roquan flashing his roguish grin. Livid and beyond words, 
Buck can hardly speak. He can only shake his head in dismay at yet another one of Roquan's rash performances. <laughs> 